Well, good morning, everybody. Happy New Year. How's everybody doing? Good. Good. My family uh, came down with some sort of sickness around Christmas time, and I'm still on kind of the tail end of it. Um, so if I cough a little bit, that's why. I'll stay away from all of you guys. I don't think I'm contagious or anything. For some reason, colds just kind of stick with me. So that's my disclaimer for if I cough. But welcome, you guys. My name's Travis. Um, I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new with us here today, I just want you to know we're going to be talking about money today. A lot of times people are new to church and they're like, oh, those preachers, they're always talking about money. <laughs> we actually don't a lot around here. But every once in a while, we feel like we probably should. So welcome to the family. Welcome to the family meeting. We're going to actually do a three-part series this Sunday, next Sunday, and the following Sunday, just talking about money. Kind of felt like it was a good way to start off a new year, especially in a season where it seems like money's kind of on a lot of people's minds. Is it on your mind? I was kind of looking up some stats. This is from Dave Ramsey, and uh, this is, he just published this. This is about last year, so just a few months ago into the last 12 months. And um, from their surveys, 50% of Americans are saying that finances are negatively impacting their mental health currently. From this survey that he did, 41% of the people surveyed said that they cried in the last three months because of stress related to money. 40% say they've actually suffered an anxiety attack in the last year due to stress related to money. This from Ramsey as well. We're experiencing um, inflation. Have you guys experienced the budget hit? My family's experienced the budget hit. I like steak. Steak's not affordable anymore. Eggs are up 43%. Now, there's multiple reasons for that. There's a lot of bird flu going around. Millions upon millions of chickens have had to be uh, destroyed. But all these other 16.9% on meats, other meats, 15.5% on dairy products. The USDA said this month that they're looking ahead at this whole year and they're expecting at least a 4% increase above all of this on costs of food. Does that stress you out? Maybe some of you are really rich in the room. You're like, man, eh, okay. It's all right. It stresses me out. I mean, you, you find yourself here me washing $200 worth of groceries in 2022. And if you go to the gas pump, you know, things are getting a little bit better, but still, I kind of have this song in my mind. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little, it's really bad when the check engine light comes on and you still sing this song. Because all these things ultimately impact our bank account. And then that, when it drains and gets lower and lower, and we see it, and we're looking at the future, can produce anxiety. And we just wanted to kind of give also a glimpse of our church finances for the year. We had planned this series before really being able to take stock of what the financial year looks like, so we didn't really know what was coming. We have experienced a downturn, I think, just like everybody else in terms of church finances. And in two weeks, if you really want to know more about that, Aaron's going to dive in depth but we, I just, we just wanted to, you know, we did plan this series before experiencing that. And um, we'll just share those numbers in two weeks here. But ultimately, our goal with talking about money is we'd love to see a healthy church. 
in all the different ways where God calls us to follow him and be disciples. Healthy church, who ultimately each one of the people in the church, the disciples, the saints of Jesus, are worshiping God with their money. We have to talk about money. We don't talk about it very much, like I said. We haven't talked directly about it from this stage or thoroughly about it from the stage in quite some time. We kind of touch on it each spring when we do our missions campaign. You guys have been experienced, you've experienced that every single year, but usually that's just a little bit of an extended announcement, a quick state of where our budget is at. We unpack that with leaders sometimes, but we don't tend to focus on it. And I think one of the reasons we're reluctant to talk about it is just because there's a stigma in this world. Like I said, you're walking in, you're new, oh, the preacher's talking about money, great. And as the internet has leaned into all of the public records out there, there's more and more stuff surfacing about how ministries and churches and pastors in particular and just other nonprofits squander the money and waste it and are committing fraud. And we don't want to do that. We don't want it to even seem like we're doing it. So sometimes I think maybe we shy away from it because we don't want unnecessary suspicion or accusations. But the reality is we are under a biblical mandate to talk about money. We have to talk about it. Um, But at the same time, the Bible says that we don't want to compel people to give. And if you have been around for a while, you've noticed that we don't pass a plate here when we ask for money. We don't even ask for it, really. We just kind of hope that the teaching of Jesus and tithing inspires you guys, and we have a giving box kind of in an obscure location in the back. In some ways, it's like we make it hard to give. And one of the reasons for that is because we take the Bible seriously. Um, Am I missing a... I must be missing a slide. I am. Anyway, I guess I'm missing a slide. We'll just look at this guess, empty guess, shining light. (laughs) 2 Corinthians 9.7, Paul wrote this to the Corinthian church, and he was talking about giving. And he said this, he said, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so we don't want to inappropriately compel anyone in this room to give. We don't want anybody giving out of peer pressure, out of fleshly reasons. And so we don't want you to have the temptation of looking at how much your neighbor put in a plate and it passes by you, and you feel compelled to put a certain amount in. We'd like that to be private between you and God. So we hold that as a high ideal, which is why we don't pass a plate in this church. But we do need to talk about money, because we feel like we're not adequately shepherding the church and teaching the Bible if we don't talk about money. Money actually is all over in the Bible. Where are we at here? Oh, you found my thing. I just put it in the wrong place. Uh, Money is in the Bible. 2,300 plus verses about money in the Bible. I saw one that went as, far, as high as 2,500. It gets a little fuzzy as you interpret what the verses are about, but there's far more verses about money in the Bible than there are verses about faith and prayer, of which when you combine those, there's only about 500 verses. If you look at the ministry of Jesus as he taught, about 15% of his teaching was specifically related to money. 11 out of his 39 parables were about money. So it, it's his, basically his top topic when it comes to his parables, which is pretty fascinating. Now, I think out of my order here, I don't know how that got so out of order, but 1 Timothy 6, there are specific instructions in the Bible where Paul writes to Timothy and he says, you need to teach these things, and specifically, 
teach the rich. And I think as pastors, we realize here we live in Fort Collins, and we may, in the grand scheme of what income looks like in Fort Collins, be right in the middle here in this room. Some of you may be like, man, what are you talking about? I'm really hurting. But I think the reality is in comparison to most of the world, all of us in this room are rich. We'd be in that category as opposed to a category of poor. Now, you may be an exception to that. That's okay. But the Bible specifically commands us to instruct the rich. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them, that's the rich, to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. And then the next verse, it says, in this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Jesus speaks of money when he speaks of it as one of the biggest competitors, if not the biggest competitor to devotion to God. And so it seems like our hearts and our bank accounts are linked. So I'm going to expand on that in just a minute, but first, I think before going further, I just want to invite us all into this willingness to follow God to follow what he says in his word about money, whatever way he might lead us as a group or as individuals over the next three weeks as we talk about money. So I think we're going to share a lot of thoughts and ideas. We're going to get into some practicals. We're going to talk about budgeting and things like that. But it's going to be useless if we don't have hearts that are soft, ready to respond to the Holy Spirit, and willing to make changes. So let's just take a moment, and we'll just all be silent here, and let's just pray. And I'd like for us to pray, first of all, just to ask God to just expose anything in your heart or anything in your overall patterns, maybe related to money, right here in this quiet moment. And then just, if you have enough faith to do it, ask God to help you commit to taking whatever steps will be necessary as we focus on this over the next couple of weeks. So let's just take a few moments here, and then I'll, I'll bring us back in. Go ahead. God, we recognize that money can be a very personal topic. It is so linked to so many things in our lives, even the quality of our life. Um, God, help us to sort out what you want us to do, how you want us to believe, what you want us to understand and know 
about the high-level concept of just what you would have for money in general and then the practical specifics for each one of us. You know our situations. You know our careers. You know our mortgages. You know our budgets. God, we, I think just deep down, we cry out wanting to worship you. Heart, soul, mind, strength, everything that we have, and that includes our money. God, that is our heart's cry. Lead us, we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Enlighten us. Fill us with you right now. Help us to see what you have for us. And then help us to implement it. God, and keep our hearts and minds fixed on that eternal treasure that we're laying up for ourselves. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have another resource just as we're thinking about practicals with money, and we're going to, like I said, dive into more practicals over the upcoming weeks. Um, I'm going to kind of sit on a high level and talk about worship, really is my topic today, the heart of the matter with money. But we have small groups, and what we've done with our small groups is we've actually asked our small group leaders to take these three weeks, if you're on a small group, and actually have discussion questions related to our three topics here for these three weeks, and actually go into... um, talking further, because money, while it can be a very private thing, it needs accountability. It needs, you need to be known. We believe that, that that's really true. And so we would love for each one of us to maybe even be eager for the mentorship of our peers and our friends and, and, and those around us. And we should be willing to be open about it. It's a part of our discipleship. So that's what's coming with our small groups. If you're not on a small group, we just encourage you to jump into one. You can talk to one of the pastors, um, or, you know, somebody else, um, there, a lot of us can get you jumped in with a small group, even if it's just temporary. I think these would be a good three weeks to tangibly um, uh, lock in there. And then kind of at the end of our series, starting in February, we're going to have a Sunday morning Sunday school class, basically a finance class that Mark Saunders is going to teach that will be offered for everybody, too, and that will be a lot more tangible practicals. So let's dive into the meat of what we want to talk about today. And ultimately, it's money in the heart And I think the goal is ultimately that a heart of worship is where we need to be at. It's what we need to be thinking about. We were made to worship. There's the first commandment in the Bible. I mean, in the Ten Commandments. This is where, you know, Moses gets the the law and there's these Ten Commandments and we've got them written all over the place. The very first one says, you shall have no other gods before me. I was thinking about that this week and, and reading various parts in the Bible where Jesus talked about worship, and there was a point where he was with the woman at the well, if you remember that, and he says, he says there in John 4, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, basically with everything that you've got. You're designed, you're made to worship God, and anything that takes that place is another God. The second commandment. Don't make any idols. Don't have another God. Don't make for yourself another God. Another God can take the shape of many things, and it can take the shape of money. God is the only one who can satisfy our hearts, and he knows that. That's why he's commanding this. One of my favorite passages in the Bible in Psalm 16, I love this because there's such a promise to it. Like when you're thinking about giving something up, Realizing Jesus calls someone to come and ultimately maybe even give up their whole life following him. Here the psalmist says, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. There's a promise 
that if you worship God and God alone and you forsake lesser things, there will be pleasures forevermore for you. You will be filled with joy as you encounter the presence of God. So I think God is most interested, not even necessarily in our actions, our words about what we do with money and things like that, but our heart's posture towards him. And Proverbs 4 says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And so as we think about the heart, ultimately, this is where worship flows out of. We have to keep a diligent watch on it. Keep your heart. Be diligent about what it is that you care about. Guard it. The New Living Translation says, guard it. It determines the course of your life. From it flow the springs of life. The NIV says, everything that you do comes from it, meaning the heart. And so where your heart is devoted, that determines the course of your life. Where are your dreams? Where are your focal points? What do you care about? About. I'd like you guys to pull out your Bibles. We're going to go to Mark chapter 10. If you're looking at the Big House Bible, that's page 846. We're going to start in verse 17. This is a story that's recorded the same way across three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. A lot of space dedicated to it then, a lot of emphasis, meaning it's important, not that if it's just in one of the Gospels, it's not as important, but that just gives us a, a sense of its significance. And as he was setting out upon his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 18, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder. Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is for, to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's a pretty provocative statement. If you're rich, imagine a giant camel and a little itty-bitty needle. Squeeze that camel through that eye of that needle. I mean, it's hard to get a thread through that little eye of the needle, right? Have you ever tried that? That's almost impossible. Especially as you get older and your eyes can't focus. It's really weird. Imagine shoving a camel through that. For a rich person, there's a, a barrier to eternal life. Somehow that's not the same barrier to other types of people. And it's kind of a provocative statement too where Jesus tells the man, hey, you're just lacking one thing. Go sell all that you own. 
give that money to the poor. Get rid of all of it. If I'm honest, I think if that man approached me as a pastor and was like, hey, I'd like to join your ministry, I'd like to join your church, I'd be like, tell me about the state of your morality. How are you? How are you doing? Like, what do you believe to be true? And he's like, well, I, I don't commit adultery, I don't lie, I don't steal, I don't cheat, I don't, you know, I kept all the commandments. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Come on in. Like, you've got this influential, probably power, you know, he's kind of referred to as a ruler in some places. He obviously has a lot of property. He's got a lot of possessions. Like, man, you'd be a great resource. Not only do you have all this stuff, but you're morally upright. You're good. Like, you must have something good going on. Come on, join us. I'd love to have him join our church. He's, he's wealthy. He's self-aware enough to have enough humility to come and say, hey, I still feel like I'm lacking something. Is there something I can add on to all of this stuff? that I've already been doing that can give me eternal life. I just feel like I still need it. And so he's even humble. It's like the epitome of a potentially faithful follower. And Jesus just says one really provocative thing to him and just kind of sends him away. I think it's a perfectly legitimate question. What is it that I'm still lacking? This humble. And just at face value, if you just... You don't look at Jesus' response. You go, wow, what a great guy. And I wonder, with the state of our general riches here in Fort Collins and our general sense of possessions and everything that we've got, we're pretty responsible, dependable, moral people as a group, I think. Could we be at risk of whatever it is that this guy has as his problem? Where Jesus looks past the face value of, wow, you've done all these good moral things and goes to his heart and says, but you're lacking one thing. And I wonder how many of us could be guilty of that. I wonder if even despite having our own lives together with career, finances, morals, character, whatever, maybe we still feel like we're lacking something and we're maybe even here in this room approaching Jesus going, hey, I feel like I'm lacking something about the humility to come and seek input from Jesus and yet I think maybe it's possible to end up with this firm response from the word that would grieve us and send us away like this rich young man and I think this rich young man I think I think he's got kind of two problems two main problems both related one he's assuming that Christianity is something that can be added onto your life like you can take all of your life let me add bolt on this thing for eternal life, right? I think that's his first problem. And then I think his second problem is he's thinking that Christianity is something that you can do. He's asking, what must I do to get eternal life? Like, I need to still do something. I think he's kind of making those two mistakes. And, and I think maybe that first one, like, we can bolt this on. This might be a particular temptation for us in Fort Collins, like, I've got my whole life, I've got all this stuff together, I've got my sports and my activities, and my kids are in a good school, and we've got good grades going on, my marriage is going pretty well, I can pay for my house, I, you know, I just feel like maybe I'm lacking one thing, I'll go to church and bolt that on. I think Jesus' extreme response says you can't just come to God to round yourself out. He's saying, this is something... That if you want to commit to me, it's going to have to demolish everything that you are and everything that you have and everything that you hold on to and completely rebuild it. 
I think that's why Jesus went for this one particular point with this guy. He's saying, I need to start you completely fresh because you're completely not getting it. You can't bolt me onto your life. I'm not an addition, I'm everything. And then the second thing, the man says, what must I do? He's asking about some sort of action he can perform, like I need to get to be good enough or whatever it is. And I think kind of reading between the lines there, like Jesus is just saying, you know, first of all, he says, you call me good, no one's good except God alone. So he's like, first of all, you're, you're not good. I, I, we know that. Even though you say you've done all these things, we know you're not good because only God is good. And ultimately, obtaining eternal life isn't even a matter of being good because none of these people here can be good. It's not a matter of something that you do. And then he asks the man to leave his wealth and become his disciple. And I think basically he's asking this man something that he knows is virtually impossible for him. I mean, Jesus is saying, well, let's look at your heart. Let's look at the first of the Ten Commandments. Let's look at, you should have no other gods before me. And Jesus is saying, just because I say so, will you get rid of all of your stuff? In other words, if God is first in your life, first, he's God, he's Lord, anything and everything else must be trivial in comparison. You can't do anything to gain eternal life. So I want to just ask us, what's in our hearts? Are there things in us that we value over God? And Jesus is asking this really, really hard thing, and maybe it's even a harsh thing. And you might say, wow, Jesus, you could have softened that a little bit and worked your way into this guy's heart and helped guide him and helped teach him. But I love, I love this one verse, verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. He loved this man, which is why he was so harsh with him. This is why he was hard on him. He looked into this man's heart, and he saw a cancer. He saw a monster eating at this man's soul. He saw the thing that was going to keep this man from eternal life. And it was all of his possessions. It was his money. He saw the one thing that needed to go. And he went straight for it. You've got to get rid of all your money. And it is interesting. This is the only person I could find in the Bible that God actually asked to do that. So it's not a precedent for all of us. Before you think, wow, this preacher's up here telling me I have to get rid of everything. Live a life of vowed poverty. Well, you know, Zacchaeus was a really wealthy man, this tax collector. Jesus only asked him to give half back. You know, Jesus blessed Abraham in the Old Testament, made him one of the richest men in the world. That wasn't a problem. Remember when he's reinstating Job after all of Job's trials? He gives him everything he had and far more in terms of wealth. When nations turn to follow God in Scripture and in history, they generally end up prosperous. So wealth itself isn't necessarily the problem Jesus sees this man's heart, and he sees that he values his possessions over God. And so he's doing this drastic measure with him like you do with an alcoholic. 
cut them off. You need to go cold turkey on this to prove you can put me first. Think of other places in the Bible where he does that. You know, I mentioned Abraham. Abraham was asked at one point just to prove how much faith he had in God and whether he would put God first. God said, take your firstborn son whom you love and sacrifice him for me. And Abraham, you know the story, went through with it all the way up to basically about to plunge the knife into his son's heart to kill him. And God stopped him and said, okay, you've proven your your love for me. You would give up your own son for the sake of me. And then he provided a substitute for his son. And there's that sort of proto-gospel there where we foresee God giving his own son. I love that moment. But I think the implication there is he's going to do that with each one of us in some way. It might be with money. It might be with something else. What is it that you treasure? What is it that you truly value? What is it in you? Um, I think for me, one of the things he did with me was he had me give up music. Now, you guys all know I love music. I play music on a regular basis. But there was a time when I wasn't a pastor yet here. And I remember I was playing music weekly for both our college service and our Sunday morning service on a regular basis. And I was loving it. I was in the process of recording an album. I was kind of thinking about where this could go and expand and grow. My goal was always to be some sort of professional touring musician. That was kind of my, my thing. And one of the pastors here approached me and said, how would you like to join our pastor training class and become a pastor? I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. And he goes, here's the catch. You're going to have to give up music. I was like, I don't know about that. So I jumped into that training class for about a year. At the end of the year, he came back to me and he said, I think um, you definitely are geared this way, and I think maybe God is calling you this way, but you're going to have to give up music. Can you do that? And I said, no, and I backed out of the class for a whole year because I wasn't sure, because I loved it. That year, God did some battles in my heart. Probably the height of that, I was leading worship on this stage. I was thinking about recording this album that I was recording. I was about done with it. I was getting real proud of it. We were going into the mixing phases. I walked off this stage right here and out those doors, and there was a guy standing out there I'd never seen before. He walks up to me, and he he gives me a job offer. And he started out with the pay, which was fascinating to me. He's from a large church down south here. And he's like, you're the answer to fix my church's music problem. And the pay immediately gave me this salary and was triple what I was making here. I was like, is this appropriate to approach a guy in his own church and give him a job offer? <laughs> and I was wrestling with music or pastor. In my head, these are two separate things. I was, gonna, I was looking at a life of going, I'm never going to pick up a microphone again and sing into it. I'm just going to talk. And God started working on my heart. Because it was really strange. Instantaneously, I told him no. And then I had to go figure out why in the world that was my gut reaction. And I realized God was calling me to this family in whatever capacity that would be. And so I went back to that pastor and I said, yes, I'm willing to give up music. I'd like to join the pastor training class again. And I jumped back in. 
And uh, he came to me a few weeks later. He said, that was just basically a test. You don't have to give up music. You could probably do even more music than you're doing right now. <laughs> but I think in that, God was testing my allegiance. And it wasn't necessarily that me being a musician was going to be a bad thing. It's just simply I had taken that piece of my life and taken so much identity and security and comfort, affirmation, the things that I, I think these are me. Right? And I elevated them above what maybe God thought of me or what God said was true about me. And this is kind of the case I want to make today. Jesus may be asking you to relinquish a dream. It may not be related to money at all, even though that's our topic for today. What he is desiring is for you to give him the thing that means the most to you, regardless of whatever that may be, because you're valuing it more than him is a cancer in your soul. It's going to destroy you until you give it to Jesus and let him control it. So like I said, the problem isn't really money. It's that money can come before Jesus. It could be a lot of different things. I've seen people even, maybe the problem is, is money, but they don't have any money. That could be a big issue as well. It fills you with anxiety that you don't have it. You get bitter towards people who have it. You trample over people in efforts to get money. Maybe you do unethical or even criminal things to get money because money is still at the root of your identity. Maybe you have money. Maybe the issue is you have money, you're really, really rich, but you look at it and you go, wow, look at how intelligent I am. Look at how disciplined I am. Look at how that hunch making that investment played out. I am awesome. Right? There's so many different facets to this. Either way, Jesus says you lack one thing. Are you willing to give that up for me? This is the verse that Chad shared earlier. I didn't know he was going to share that. I don't think he knew that I was going to share this until we connected this morning. It's a great verse. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, like I said, it may not be about money. Jesus didn't even really indicate it was necessarily about money. The Apostle Paul said to Timothy, he says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Not money itself necessarily, it's the love of Money. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The King James actually says all evil. All kinds of evils. You can have none of it and love it like crazy. You just can't get a hold of it, and that eats you up inside. It's the love of money that corrupts. Later on in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot bolt God on to your life. I think here Jesus is implying money may be one of the main competitors for our worship, one of the main competitors for our hearts. You know, it's interesting 
As a pastor, I've had many, many people come and confess various sin things to me over the years. I don't know if you other pastors maybe can confirm this too. Maybe it's just me, but I've had people confess anger, bitterness, pride, lust. I mean, all kinds of really weird things. I don't think I've ever had anyone come and confess to me, hey, I think I'm greedy. I'm materialistic. I think I'm infatuated with money. I think I love money. I've never had anybody say that to me. That is fascinating to me. I think money represents something to us. I think it represents the means of obtaining our desires. It kind of demonstrates where our hearts are at. I ran across this. My kids have been, eh, where'd it go? There was a graphic that was supposed to be in there. Is that Calvin and Hobbes thing not in there, you guys? There it is. I don't know how all these things got out of order. I ran across this this week. My kids have been reading Cal- rereading Calvin and Hobbes again, so I found that it was actually sitting on the coffee table. I picked it up the other day. Calvin, your mother and I have decided to give you an allowance. It's important that one learns the value of money. Money, ha, 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 I'm rich, I'm rich. I can buy off anyone. The world is mine. Power, friends, prestige. I can buy it all. I'm free, ha, ha. I blew it again, dear. I think Calvin has some questionable uh, desires. Money isn't the thing. Look at what it's betraying what's in his heart. It's revealing what's in his heart. He's going to use it as a mechanism to get the things that he desires. It's, in, it's his heart thing. Our use of money is going to demonstrate where our hearts are at. I think the reason this rich young man, what he's missed, he's missed the treasure in heaven idea. He doesn't understand it. Jesus is saying, you're going to have to get rid of all this stuff, put me first, and then and only then will you get eternal treasures. And I think ultimately Jesus knows and he loves this man and he's speaking to him so strongly because he knows, Jesus knows, I'm the only treasure that matters. We were up here in our circle this morning with the band and Colin T. Walt prayed about Jesus being a treasure And I loved the words that you used, Colin. You said, he's of infinite worth, a treasure of infinite worth. And it just got me to thinking that any earthly thing, whether it's land, possessions, anything we could desire, it's finite, it's temporary. When we die, we can't take it with us. We're going to leave it behind. But when we die, if we've given our heart to Jesus solely and fully, We have a treasure that's of infinite value. So when you're contrasting infinite value versus finite value, there's no comparison if you're a math person. You may have the greatest investment portfolio on the planet. You might be richer than Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and Bill Gates combined. It's nothing compared to the infinite worth of Jesus Christ. Nothing. You can be adopted into the family of God. You can have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You can be treasured by God and have him as your treasure. Your temporal gain on earth is nothing, Jesus says, compared to what I can give you. Don't you see thieves can break in and steal everything you've got? You could become penniless. It's temporal. Moths can eat it. 
Rust can destroy it. When you die, you're going to leave it all behind. You're going to face eternity without any of it. It won't matter at all at that point. But what Jesus says is, I can give you something permanent. I can give you a treasure of infinite worth. Anything that you value on this planet will pass away. I will be forever. Be forever. I just want to get us back to this verse. Like I said, I love this verse. Psalm 1611. Band, you guys can come on back up. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Jesus loved this man and looked at him and he gave him the one thing he needed to do. And on the surface level, if you're looking at it on this side of eternity, it looks maybe a little bit harsh and a little extreme. Jesus is saying, I can fill you with pleasure and joy for all of eternity. And I truly love you, so that's what I want you to have because that's the best thing. Jesus knows it. My question for us is, do we believe that? Do we see that? Do we see Jesus as our treasure, Jesus as our righteousness, Jesus as our track record before God? If you have it, it changes your attitude towards everything that's finite. It can turn you into a generous person. It can turn you into a non-anxious presence in a chaotic world that's just scrambling to get and receive and consume. You can transcend all of that if your heart is devoted to him. You can be free from worry, free from envy, free for generosity. It's so great. And ultimately, you can be treasured by God. This goes both ways. It's amazing how it goes both ways. Jesus loved that man so much, and he loves you so much. I was reading another place where the disciples went out Jesus sent them out, and they were casting out demons and doing all these amazing things. And they came back, and they're like, God, this amazing stuff happened. And Jesus says, don't rejoice that you did all those things. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Is that where our hearts are at, some of you, church? Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Don't you see the freedom that can come? Don't you see how that truly is when you're rich? That is the ultimate wealth. So my question is as we conclude. If Jesus looked at your heart, would he see a similar idol as this rich young man in some capacity? Maybe related to money, maybe something else. We're going to expand on that a little bit next week. And then a question, are you willing to do whatever it takes to free yourself from that cancer, the worship of money or something else? And transfer your allegiance to God. Are we willing to do that? Those are my two questions. Would Jesus recognize a similar idol in your heart, in your life? And are you willing to do whatever it takes to transfer your allegiance to make Jesus your master? Remember, no man can serve two masters. So next week, we're going to address what it often looks like to worship money in different categories, what that might manifest itself as and consider practical tangibles to breaking free from those chains. The week after that, we're going to discuss what it looks like to proactively, strategically use money as a servant for the purpose of God. Along the way, look for, we'll, we'll give out some helpful resources, some tools, 
um, that we can use to walk through, remember, get to your small group meetings, go through these discussions, do this in community with one another. Let's allow ourselves to be known. And we're going to sing a song together to close. Um, and then, Zeke, I'll have you close us after the song. But we're going to sing this God Be song. Actually, Zeke is the one who brought this to me. It's a great song. Verse 2, I don't care for riches nor man's empty praise because you're all I want for all of my days. I'd give all my money. I'd throw it away to stand in your presence and feel the light of your face. All I want is you, you know. Because through the joy of letting go, I've found my peace I found my hope. I found my home. So my prayer for us, some of you church, is that through this we would find our peace, our hope, and our home. And it wouldn't be in money.